heard the phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. In other words, there are some things that people see differently. And that's true when it comes to the message that we call the gospel. We are in part two of a sermon we started last week titled, The Beauty of the Gospel. And when it comes to that message, you need to understand, not everyone finds it beautiful. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 tells us that the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. The message we've gathered together to celebrate today, we just sang about, in some people's eyes, is not beautiful, it's, it's foolish. But when you've truly encountered the life-changing power of Christ, when you've truly embraced the forgiveness and the freedom that Christ gives, and when you gaze at that message in an ongoing way, you will find that the gospel gets more and more and more beautiful. And what we're doing this morning is we're just gazing. We're just together looking at the beauty of the good news. And so keeping that in mind, would you just look with me in Galatians chapter 1. We have begun a study through this first century letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians, or several groups of Christians, throughout the Roman province of Galatia. Galatians chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 1, but we're going to focus specifically on verses 3 through 5. I want to ask you this morning if you're physically able to stand with me in honor, honor of the reading of God's Word. Grateful for our music team, our choir. I uh, was at the Memphis Hustle game yesterday and got to hear our choir lead in the national anthem. And it always makes me proud to be an American when I'm singing the national anthem, but to see our church choir down there singing made me proud to be their pastor. And uh, grateful for them this morning. Uh, look there with me, Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. The Bible says, Paul... An apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, it is wonderful to be in your presence today. And we come to this moment expectantly. Lord, we expect you to speak to us by your word, apply to our hearts by your spirit. And we're excited. Well, we can't wait to have our lives molded and shaped yet again by you. 
And Lord, I do pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would be able to see together the beauty of the gospel. Lord, I really believe there are some some parts of this passage today that are really going to help folks. And so, Lord, would you just draw near and help us by your Spirit. And I pray that in all of this, the name of Jesus would be exalted. For it's in his name that we pray today. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As I've told you the previous sermons, as Paul begins this letter, he begins the customary way. That letters were written in the first century. He identifies himself, the sender. He identifies the recipients, the churches of Galatia. He gives a quick word of blessing. But in this letter, he doesn't do what he does in some other letters. In most of his other letters, as he's writing to churches, he shares a word of, condem- uh, of commendation, a word of blessing, a word of thankfulness for that church. He doesn't do that here. He gives the blessing, but then he gets right into the subject matter because he's angry. He's angry that uh, the churches in Galatia were departing from the message of the gospel. So he's going to get right to it starting in verse 6 with a word of rebuke. But before he rebukes, he reminds. And verses 3 through 5 are reminders of the beauty of the gospel. Before he says, why are you walking away from the gospel? He wants him to remember what the gospel is all about. So last week we began a sermon with five points called the beauty of the gospel. We made it through three of the five points. Last week I showed you that when you embrace the gospel message, you receive a new father. He mentions God, our father. When you embrace the gospel message, you receive a new first priority. He mentions the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about the implications of the lordship of Jesus over our lives. And then we said that when you embrace the gospel, you receive a new family. We become a part of the family of God. We belong to the family of Jesus Christ with our brothers and our sisters. But there are two other realities I want you to see. Two Two things you receive when you embrace the gospel message. Number four, you receive a new freedom. A new freedom. Now, I want you to just hone in with me on verses three and four. We didn't spend a lot of time here last week, and I need some time to just break this down for you because it is so uh, impacting. It says there in verse three, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And look in verse four who gave himself for our sins to deliver us, to rescue us, that's what that word means, to save us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. He speaks here in verse 4 specifically of the freedom that is ours in Jesus Christ. And it is so vital that you and I understand this freedom. Now, to to kind of grasp hold of this, you need to understand that Jesus is a rescuer. That's who he is. He's a rescuer. He's a a savior. He's a deliverer. The Bible speaks of that all throughout uh, of of Jesus' saving mission. Over in Luke 19, when Jesus speaks of his reason for coming to this earth, he says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He's a rescuer, a deliverer, which leads to this question, 
How did Jesus rescue you? What does this rescue look like in individual people's lives? Well, first of all, Jesus rescued you through his finished work. He rescued you from his finished work. Notice it says there, verse 4, it says, He gave himself for our sins to deliver us. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us. Now, that word for, when it says he gave himself for our sins, that word for is an interesting word. There are a couple of different words in the Greek language that could be translated for. Uh, one word is the word gar, it's not translated uh, for, and it basically means because of, which is a, a common use of that word for. But that's not the word he uses here. He uses a uh, preposition, pair, And the word pair means, listen, on behalf of. So look back at, uh, with me at that passage. It says he gave himself on behalf of our sins to deliver us. That, that is a very specific word. And that word, on behalf of, speaks of substitution. Jesus died on our behalf. He, he took our place. That, that's how he rescues. This, this, of course, speaks of the cross. Jesus left the splendor and glory of heaven and, and, and came to this earth, taking on humanity in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And he took on humanity so he could die in the place of humans like you and me. And he, and he went to the cross, not just because of us, but on our behalf. He went to the cross and died in our place. He took the punishment that you and I deserve. That's the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus Christ. And so you might say that spiritually speaking, apart from Jesus, we are all drowning. We're drowning in our own sin. And Jesus is a rescuer. And he didn't rescue us by standing on the shoreline saying, swim harder. Or learn how to swim so you can get out of this mess. He didn't come just merely to educate us or to encourage us to earn our way out of our mess. That's not possible. You know what Jesus did? He came on our behalf. He jumped in the water with us. And he died getting us out of our mess. He died saving us from drowning in our own sin. All of that's tied up in that preposition, who pair, on our behalf. That's what he did. He, he died in our place. And he didn't stay dead. You remember what Paul said earlier in the letter? He says there, I'm an apostle not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So he died on our behalf, and then he rose from the grave to defeat death itself because he died for our sins, because he defeated death at the grave. When he rose from his tomb, he can give us eternal life. So you and I are rescued through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad you don't have to rescue yourself? Jesus did everything necessary to rescue you, which leads to the next question. What did Jesus rescue you from? Notice what it says there in verse 4. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. 
What did Jesus rescue you from? First of all, he rescued you from, the, from eternal separation from God. Notice that there it says, he gave himself on behalf of our sins, for our sins. You know, your sin separates you from a holy God. Isaiah 59, 2 is very clear that our sin makes a separation between us and God. God is holy. Unforgiven sin can never be allowed into his presence. He is too holy even to look upon that sin. So you might say that as ruined sinners, there is a barrier of impurity between us and a perfectly holy God. Remember, the Bible says in 1 John 1, 5 that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. He's perfect, he's, he's holy, he's righteous, he's just. And that's a problem because we are ruined and depraved and sinful and we can never just walk into God's presence. Something must be done with our sin. And it says Jesus gave himself who pair on our behalf for our sins. On behalf of our sins, Jesus gave his life. He paid the penalty that you and I deserve to pay so that our sins could be washed away and we could be reconciled to God, have a relationship with Him that goes on forever. If you're separated from God because of your sin, if your sin's never been washed away and you die in that condition, you will remain separated from God forever in hell. But if you embrace the gospel, Jesus applies His shed blood to your life and your sins are washed away. You're forgiven. You're reconciled to God. And that relationship will go on forever. Now listen, your soul's going to go on forever somewhere. You'll either be separated from him or you'll be reconciled to him. And the only way you'll ever be reconciled to him is through Jesus Christ. And so, Jesus rescued us from eternal separation from God. That speaks of forgiveness. All right, all right, listen, come in real close. Aren't you glad for forgiveness? Every wicked thing you've ever done or ever will do has been nailed to the cross. And because Jesus died for that sin, you, will, you, you bear it no more. Forgiveness. Your sins washed away. No longer held to your account. He's going to talk a lot about justification. Being declared righteous before God in this book of Galatians. So he rescued us from eternal separation from God. He rescued us from hell. But that's not all. And that's where a lot of Christians stop. And they don't get this next part. And This is so vital. You ready? He rescues you from the present evil age. Look what he says. He gave himself for our sins, on behalf of our sins, to deliver us, rescue us, not just from separation from God, but... From the present evil age. Not only did Jesus' finished work accomplish something for you concerning eternity, it accomplished something for you concerning this life you're living in right now. Not only did Jesus come and die and rise to grant you forgiveness, his finished work also, listen, grants us freedom. And that's what a lot of Christians don't realize. What's it mean that he rescued us from the present evil age? What's he mean by the present evil age? Well, it means that he rescues us from the evil around us. Have you noticed we live in an evil age? Do I have to spend a lot of time convincing you of that reality today? Do, do I need to you know, show you some 
some news clips to, to convince you that we live in an evil age? No, of course not. We, we all know we live in a very evil, there's evil all around us, right? We're always being bombarded with, a, with an ungodly message and, and there are ungodly people doing ungodly things and, and, and we're being tempted to do ungodly things with them. And so, it says here, he came to rescue us from that present evil age. You know what the Bible says? And this is going to be shocking to some of you, but the Bible says it. Without Jesus, we are living under the rule of Satan. That's what the Bible says. Colossians 1 says that when he delivers you, he delivers you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. So if if you don't know Jesus, you are living under the the rule and reign of Satan himself. And he's not a good king. He wants to destroy your life. And so, we're in bondage to this evil age. We're bombarded by the messages and morality of this evil world. And we find ourselves giving in. So what is the answer? Jesus came and he died and he rose so you could experience freedom from this evil age. You don't have to give in to the evil all around you. But listen to me. When it says Jesus delivers us from the present evil age, it not only means he delivers us from the evil around us, it means he rescues us from the evil within us. The evil within us. The Bible teaches that we all have a sin nature. We were born with it. That's why we sin. And by the way, that's why you don't have to teach children to sin. Right? Even if, did you teach your toddler to manipulate you? Did you sit down one day and say, I'm going to teach you how to manipulate mommy and daddy to get what you want. I'm going to teach you how to fake cry even though you're fine. But you just want what you want, right? We don't, we don't have to teach that. Why? It just comes what? Naturally. Deceit and manipulation and selfishness and pride. and it, it all comes naturally. We have a sin nature. There's not only evil around us. There's evil within us. But the Bible teaches in Romans 6 verses 5 through 11. That when we are saved, we are united with Christ by faith. And there is a death and resurrection that takes place. At the moment of conversion, the Bible teaches, just like Jesus died on the cross, your old self died with him. And just like Jesus rose from the dead, you were given a brand new life. You became a brand new person in Christ. Shadowing the resurrection of Jesus. So the Bible teaches that When we are converted, our old self dies, meaning the old sin nature is rendered powerless, and we're raised to walk in newness of life, a brand new creation. And here's what that means. It means that when you are saved, the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, comes to take up residence in your life to give you power over the sin within you. Listen, if you're a Christian, hear me, you are not powerless against sin. God himself resides in you. So this means that because of Jesus, you don't have to give in to this present evil age. The evil around you 
and the evil within you. But listen to me, just knowing that is not enough. You need to appropriate that. Now I want to show you how to do this. Turn turn to Romans. This is very important. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 11. After Paul has spent some time reminding the believers in Rome that they've died to sin, they've been raised to walk in newness of life, he talks about the implications of this, how this is appropriate or to live doubt in verse 11. He says there, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here's the first way that you experience the freedom that Christ purchased for you. You ready? You've got to consider. That's what he says there. Consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. You've got to understand what Christ has done. You've got to understand the old self is now powerless. You've been raised to walk in newness. You've got to get that. A A lot of Christians believe they're powerless against sin. They're not. Their old self is dead. It's still there, still present, but it no longer has dominion in Christ. You've got to understand that you've got to consider these truths. Now that I'm a believer in Jesus, he came to rescue me from the present evil age, the evil around me and the evil within me. And because he died on the cross and I embrace him as my Lord and Savior, my old sin nature is powerless. Because he rose from the dead and I'm united with him in Christ, I have a brand new nature to say yes to God with. You've got to consider, you've got to know these things, you've got to understand that's what happened when you were saved. There's a second word. The second word separate. Look what he says in verse 12. Let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Because sin no longer has power, don't let it have power. Don't let it reign. And look what he says next. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. So the first word is the word consider. The second word, if you want to experience this freedom in your life from sin, the second word is separate. Don't take your body, don't take your life, and present it to the wrong things. Don't avail yourself to sin. Stay away from it. Don't go near it. It says over in Romans 14, we should make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. If you know you got an issue with something, if you find yourself doing the same old thing again and again and again and again, stop putting yourself in that position. Separate. Get away from it. Run. Say, is that biblical? Paul told Timothy, flee immorality. Run. No shame in running. Get away from it. Do what you got to do to get away from it. Separate. But I want you to hear what I'm about to say next. It doesn't stop there. Look what Paul says next. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But, watch this, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Freedom from sin is not just separation, it's also surrender. 
You say, I'm not going to give my life to these things. I'm going to give my life to my Lord Jesus Christ. My life is His. It's surrender. And that's where a lot of people miss it. I've talked to people through the years that are in misery because of their sin. And they just can't seem to have victory. And, and they want to stop it. They don't want to do it anymore. And they'll try separation. And maybe that works for a little while. But they never surrender to Christ. Their life is not filled up with Him. So there's this big void that eventually their sin will fill back up. It's not just separation. It's surrender. I've seen people, their sin's making them miserable, but they're not interested in the Lordship of Christ. I've had people talk to me and say, I want to stop doing such and such. And I begin to talk about Jesus and their eyes just glaze over. I'm not interested in all that, preacher. I mean, just tell me how to stop doing what I'm doing. I'm not interested in all that other stuff. But you'll never experience freedom apart from surrender. It's just not going to happen. It's not just stop presenting yourself to sin. It's present yourself to Him. See the difference? So if you and I want to experience the freedom that Christ came to give us from this present evil age, we got to know these truths. got to consider sin no longer has power over me. I'm a new creature in Christ. We've got to separate and we've got to surrender. That's how you experience the freedom that Christ gives you as your deliverer, as your Savior. Now, let me tell you why this is so important. So important. I used to think that salvation was all about being saved from hell. So you place your faith in Christ, you pray the prayer. Or I prayed, I, you know, prayed a sinner's prayer with my pastor when I was nine years of age, and I thought, hey, good, I'm not going to hell. And, and, and I don't know why I believed that. Maybe I just wasn't listening in church, but maybe it wasn't an emphasis. But, but I just believed that, hey, Jesus came to save me from hell and that's it. And, and I never was challenged as a teenager to think about the freedom that I have in Christ. That I don't have to give in to sin. That I can say no to sin and yes to God. I can say no to sin and, and surrender my life to Him and experience not just eternal life in heaven, but an abundant life here on earth because sin is no longer my master. He came to save you, listen, from the present evil age. He came to save you from hell, but also from the present evil age. He wants you to live in freedom in this life. In fact, theologians classify salvation in three different, um, three different ways, three different stages, if you will. The Bible speaks of justification, which means you have been saved from the penalty of sin. If you've, if you've been saved by Jesus Christ, your sin has been nailed to the cross, you bear it no more, you've been completely forgiven of all of your sin, you've been justified, declared righteous before God. That happened when the, you were converted, and that's going to be true for all of eternity. Amen? You're justified. But the second stage of salvation, the Bible speaks of a sanctification, which means you are being saved from the power of sin. 
God is progressively making you more like Jesus as you say no to sin and yes to him, as you surrender and you, you experience a growing freedom from sin so your, so your practice starts to line up with your position in Christ. And the third stage is glorification, which means when we get to heaven, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. What a day that'll be, amen? Can you imagine a day when you get to heaven, there's no longer any temptation? There's no evil around you. There's no evil within you. It's been eradicated. You are just free to worship Jesus in heaven forever. That's glorification. What a day that will be. If you're saved, you've been justified. You've been saved from the penalty of sin. You will be saved from the very presence of sin when you get to heaven. But don't forget, right now, God is working to give you a growing freedom from the power of sin. Right now. The present evil age. Salvation is not just about heaven. Or or let me say it like this. You don't have to wait to start living for heaven. You can live an abundant, Christ-honoring, glorious life in this present evil age. That's what this passage says. So he rescues us. From this age. John and Charles Wesley are well known as the founders of the Methodist denomination. They were used by God mightily. But if you read their story, these brothers were very religious before they were saved. Very religious. In fact, when they were in their university studies, they began a holy club. They got together... And they would challenge each other to read the Bible and to pray and do, do, you know, do some religious things. But they knew something was missing. They even went on a mission trip. you know that? John and Charles Wesley left England, came all the way over to Georgia on a mission trip. And yet they thought, man, we're miserable missionaries. We're trying to help people and, and, and we feel far from God. And they just didn't get it. And so then they traveled back to England, and they were, they were burdened with this, this thought that, you know, we're trying to do some religious things, but we feel far from God. Something's missing. And you know the turning point for John and Charles Wesley? The turning point was the book of Galatians. In fact, they were gathered one night, and one of their Holy Club members brought Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians. And they began to read from his preface to that commentary. And, and God used the preface to the commentary on the book of Galatians to capture their hearts. Just around that time, John and Charles Wesley were converted. They were born again. They went from religion to relationship. And Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, near the beginning of his Christian journey, wrote this song. Oh, four thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. But listen to one of the verses in this song. He wrote, He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. God used Galatians in Charles and John Wesley's life and and they learned early on 
that there is not just forgiveness in Christ, there is freedom in Christ. Freedom from this present evil age. Listen to me. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you've got an ongoing issue that you just can't get victory over, it's not because you can't have victory. Do you hear what I just said? According to the Bible, that sin no longer has dominion over you. It's because you're not considering, separating, and surrendering. If you'll do those things by the power of the Spirit in your life, by God's grace, He will give you a growing freedom and victory over that sin. That's just what the Bible says. So stop living in misery, giving in to the same old sin. If you're a Christian, it no longer has power. Jesus did not come just to save you from hell. He came to save you from this present evil age. Forgiveness, yes, a thousand times yes, but also freedom. Freedom. And so... When you embrace the gospel, you receive a new freedom. But fifth and last, and we'll finish up this sermon. When you embrace the gospel, you receive a new focus. I love in Galatians 1 how this passage ends before he gets to the rebuking. He's reminding, and look what he says. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. According to, I love this, the will of our God and Father. So listen, your forgiveness, your freedom was God's idea. Isn't that cool? He's the one that thought all this up. In fact, you weren't even looking for him. He came looking for you. Right? He says, according to the will of our God and Father. And then look how he ends. To whom be the glory. Everyone say glory. Be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul touches on the theme of the glory of God here. And when you embrace Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you should have a new focus in your life. It's no longer all about you. It's all about Him and His glory. That's what he says. If, if all this salvation stuff is a reality, then, then God the Father who, who, who made it, his mission to come and save us. It was his will. He should get the glory. He should get the glory. The word glory has a definite article there. It's literally the glory. And this definite article means that the glory Paul speaks of is is God's unique glory. The glory that only belongs to him. The praise, the honor, the adoration that he alone deserves because he alone saves You see, the realities of the gospel should move us to passionately and continually glorify God. Tim Keller writes this, The biblical gospel, Paul's gospel, is clear that salvation from first to last is God's doing. It is His calling, His plan, His action, His work, and so it is He who deserves all the glory for all time. This is the humbling truth that lies at the heart of Christianity. We Listen to this, we love to be our own saviors. Our hearts love to manufacture glory for themselves, so we find messages of self-salvation extremely attractive. 
Whether they are religious, keep those rules and you're an eternal blessing, or secular, grab hold of these things and you'll experience blessing now. The gospel comes and turns them all upside down. It says you are in such a hopeless position that you need a rescue. And if Jesus, according to the will of God the Father, brought that rescue, and you could not be rescued apart from him, then God deserves the glory, not you. You remember what the Bible says about the book of Revelation? We're not going to be singing to each other in heaven. Saying, you did so good. You figured life out. You did a bunch of good things to earn your salvation. No, we're going to be singing to the Lamb who was slain for our sins. He deserves the glory. And notice how this passage ends, this, this pericope. It says, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, scholars believe that when this letter was read out loud to the churches, remember he's writing to churches in Galatia, church at Antioch, Pisidia, and Iconium, and Lystra, and Derby. They're hearing this read. And scholars believe in the first century, when they would hear amen, they would answer back, amen. Hey, there's a novel thought. <laughs> but when, when the reader of the letter, standing before the congregation, says, to him, uh, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen, the people would say, Amen. And it was their way of saying, yes, we pledge to seek the glory of God's name. We think that's what our focus should be too. We should glorify him. So how do you glorify God's name? What does that look like to give him the glory and the praise and the honor? First of all, we glorify God's name through praise. Notice it says there, to whom be the glory forever and ever. So we praise him now for what he's done, and we'll go and praise him for all of eternity for what he's done for us. He will get all of the glory. The glory goes to him, not anyone else. We glorify God's name through praise, and we glorify God's name by sharing the gospel. I like what Matt Papa writes, worship leader. He writes, The greatest motivation to share the gospel with someone today and every day? Another voice around the throne. A louder song for Jesus. Now listen to me. Do you believe that Jesus deserves a louder song? Do you believe he deserves praise from every tribe and every tongue? Then tell people about Jesus. So they can be rescued from the domain of darkness, be brought into the kingdom of the beloved Son... And begin to give him the praise that he deserves. There are people in our community and in our world that are giving glory to other things, other worldviews, other thoughts, other religions, when God alone deserves their praise. So when we share the gospel and people are saved, God gets more worship. And that's what it should be about, right? That's why we share the gospel. That's why we go on mission trips. So that there'll be more Voices around the throne singing glory to the Lamb. And so, if you're a Christian, the focus of your life should be this. Your salvation was God's idea, not your idea. and He deserves the glory forever and ever. Amen. 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 He deserves the glory. And by your amen, you're saying, I, I want to I glorify 
him. Claire and I had an interesting discussion. It's interesting to think about what God's taught us through the years in our Christian journey and, and, and some things we weren't aware of earlier in our Christian journey that would have been helpful. Uh, when I was growing up in church, the word discipleship was not used much. It was used to speak of a program on Sunday nights, discipleship training, and we'd come and hear a, a, a lesson, a Bible lecture with a, with a group of people. Uh, but the idea of, of kind of that one-on-one or small group discipleship was not just something that you heard a lot about. And, and uh, I really wasn't mentored in my walk with God until I was in, in uh, college. And, and when I began to be mentored and began to learn some of these things, I began to grow by leaps and bounds. But Claire and I were talking about things that we just weren't aware of growing up. And, and, and Claire says, I remember the day the light switch came on for me. She said, I heard someone say that it's not about me. And she thought, hmm, I never thought of that. And she began to see that the Christian life is all about him. Not the same experience. I mean, even as a believer, I used to believe it's all about Wade. It's all about me, right? The world revolves around me. And I learned it's not about me. It's about his glory. And that is a, listen, that's a major paradigm shift. And here's why I'm telling you that. Some of you are out here this morning, and you believe life is all about you. You believe you're the center of the universe. And everybody should be acting in such a way to make you happy. And you're pretty proud of yourself and your performance and who you are. And you think people should be proud of you too. And you've lost sight that our focus as Christians should be the glory of God. Listen, it's not about us. It's all about Him. And we should live like it. Amen? Amen. We should live like it. And so here's the, here's the point of the sermon. If you've embraced the gospel, the good news, you receive a new father, a new first priority, a new family, a new freedom, and a new focus. Isn't the gospel beautiful? We're just gazing and just thinking, this is all ours in Christ. Wow. Here's the point. Faithfulness to the gospel and fervor for the gospel is strengthened when we see the beauty of the gospel. So my prayer is that because of these two sermons on the beauty of the gospel, Longview Point will be a church that is more passionate about the gospel, more fervent for the cause of the gospel, more desirous of the glory of God in our midst.